you would, take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter number one. Luke's Gospel, chapter number one. We focus this morning appropriately on the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a monumental moment in human history. The intent of Luke's Gospel is that we would discern the import of this moment as we read along in the passage. It had been thousands of years since God would say to Adam and to Eve in the garden that he would crush the serpent's head, but that the serpent would strike his heel. It had been 2,000 years since God promised to Abram of Ur from the Chaldeans that he would make of him a great nation, signified the sealing of this promise, God's commitment to keep his promise and the establishment of a covenant between himself and Abraham sealed further, signified more powerfully perhaps in the birth of Isaac to a previously barren mother. It had been 1,400 years since Moses would lead the children of Israel out of their Egyptian bondage and deliver through Moses in his prophetic office a word, a promise that God would give the people of Israel a king, just the kind of king they need, a king who would prioritize the needs of the people even over those of his own. It had been a thousand years since God, through the prophet, promised to David, the king of Israel, that one in the line or the lineage of David would rule forever on the throne of Israel. It had been 700 years since the northern kingdom had been carried away, 500 years since the southern kingdom had been carried away in a season of great embarrassment in Israel's history, 500 years since God had promised through the prophet Daniel that he would work and move again among the people of Israel, more than 400 years since Israel had observed in their midst the working of any real miracle of substance, 400 years since God had spoken to the nation of Israel through the prophet Zechariah. And as Luke chapter 1 begins, we find that God is breaking through and working miraculously and speaking now, not through the prophet Zechariah, but some 500 years later through Zechariah the priest announcing the birth of John the Baptist. The same angel, Gabriel by name, is sent to deliver a message to Mary virgin maiden from the city of Nazareth, a relatively insignificant place, an insignificant young girl whose life would be forever changed by what would ensue in verses 26 and following. Our tendency is to look at things in sort of a linear fashion. We have isolated for this day the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ on Good Friday. We have isolated our celebration of the crucifixion of Jesus on Resurrection Sunday. We have isolated our celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, and perhaps appropriately so. But it's probably best that we would regard the whole of the Savior's life as a single event. No one part of Jesus' life can be isolated from the other as bearing greater significance in the salvation he has brought to bear. Without the virgin birth, there is no sacrificial death. Without the sacrificial death, there is no resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is no significance whatsoever to either a virgin birth or a sacrificial death. Every step along the way marks a critical step in Jesus' fulfillment of the law 
and his substitutionary sacrifice. This story all begins in a Bethlehem manger. Look with me to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 and following. Would you join me in standing as we read the word of God together? Luke chapter 1, verse 26. This is what the word of God says. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Rejoice, favored woman, the Lord is with you. She was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. The angel told her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son. You will call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I've not been intimate with a man? The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said in verse 38, I am the Lord's slave. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel left her. Would you join me in prayer? God, would you grant us fresh eyes, fresh ears, freshened hearts, God, that we might be surprised at what you've done in history to save us from our sin. God, I, I pray that your word would not suffer familiarity fatigue with us this morning, but that we would stand in awe of the mighty way, the powerful way that you have been at work in human history. To save a wretch like me. Grant it so, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This is a remarkable moment. This is the moment in time in human history when God broke through. When he intervened in the life circumstances of Mary and of Joseph, we might add, Zechariah and Elizabeth to do something that would exceed their wildest imaginations, sending forth his only son, that he would deliver us by his life and death and resurrection from all our sin. The Bible says again in verse 26 that it was the sixth month, and the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. That virgin's name was Mary. We've been attempting to establish this pattern of expectation from the Old Testament over the past several weeks and then again last night and examining the miraculous birth of John the Baptist. There is a pattern whereby these miracle children are born that is observable in those Old Testament passages. What that creates for us is the opportunity to be really surprised when there's a deviation from that pattern. It's not as though these things are conjured or concocted in someone's imagination. It is that God has orchestrated the events of human history and then by the inspiration of his word has framed the story of what he's done in history in a way to have maximum power and maximum impact in the heart of those who hear and, and read his word. 
There's six examples of previously barren women who miraculously give birth to children in the Old Testament. In every example, there are aged women, well advanced in age, who've been unable to conceive for the duration of their life. In each of those examples, and we might include Elizabeth earlier in Luke chapter 1, their fortunes were reversed. The tables were turned for them as a result of the birth of those children. Hannah was provoked by Peninnah. She was regarded by the culture as less than suitable. Not quite the wife she might otherwise be if she were to bear to Elkanah a child. And so as she prayed and God was faithful to grant her the boy Samuel who would serve as priest and eventually as prophet, her whole life changed. The culture, the society began to regard her differently than they had in times past. Sarah had received the promise of God. In fact, she overheard a conversation between her husband, Abram, and the angel of the Lord, where the angel of the Lord revealed to Abram that Sarah, even in her old age, would bear a child. This was so far beyond the pale that Sarah was found to be laughing at the promise of God from outside the tent. But with the birth of Isaac, her fortunes were changed. What seemed unlikely, what seemed improbable, what seemed to her to be impossible, God would perform in the birth of Isaac and completely change the family dynamic. She would now become the mother of promise, the matriarch of all matriarchs. With each of these developments in the Old Testament, the next page is being turned in redemptive history. The next link in the chain of what God would do to save a people all his own was being established. Here the example of Mary completely breaks with that Old Testament pattern. Elizabeth would say of herself, I was disgraced among people. You have looked with favor upon me. Elizabeth says, my whole life changed with the birth of John the Baptist. The culture, society, my husband, my family, everyone now regards me differently because of the birth of this child in the most positive of ways. Whereas it was an older, barren woman in all of those Old Testament examples, we have something altogether different. It's Mary. Most New Testament scholars would suggest to you that she is in her early teenage years when she's visited by the angel Gabriel, presumed to be righteous, innocent. This is altogether unlike the way Elizabeth was perceived. In fact, Luke is careful to note that Elizabeth was blameless and upright. She did the right things. The same is true of her husband, Zechariah, because you might assume, operating from the cultural perspective of those living around her, that something was undone, something was amiss in Elizabeth's life. You would make that assumption at least until she bore forth a child, which would be the signal that indeed Zechariah and Elizabeth are right. But the conception of Jesus in the womb of the virgin maiden would lead to skepticism and scorn, a great deal of curiosity. Whereas Elizabeth had been favored, exalted, her fortunes had been reversed in the conception and eventual birth of John the Baptist, now everything had been called into question for young Mary. Verse 28, the Bible says the angel came to her and said, Rejoice, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Yeah, I, I don't know if there's any real literary or interpretive significance to this major break from this 
older woman unable to bear a child whose fortunes are reversed, and now Mary, who seemed to have everything going for her, and now her life is a mess because conceived in her of the Holy Spirit is the only begotten Son of God. But this, in some ways, foreshadows the fact that wherever Jesus goes, there is some measure of conflict and controversy, and often what comes with service to God in the truest sense of service to God is a great deal of shame, persecution, problems can attend our efforts at serving God faithfully. Rejoice, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Verse 29 says she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. And the angel told her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call his name Jesus. This is not just a name that's chosen at random. The name Jesus literally means God saves, Yahweh saves. He will save his people from their sin, and so you will name him Jesus. He'll be great. We'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. You know, for a Gentile writer... Luke really understands the dynamic that exists between what God had promised under the old covenant and what was coming to pass now under the new. A thousand years before the birth of Jesus, there was a promise made to David, the king of Israel, that one in the line of David would rule forever on the throne of Israel. And there are really two fulfillments in view in the promise that the prophet gives in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Most of the time, from our post-resurrection perspective, knowing what we know about Jesus, we regard 2 Samuel 7 as finding its fulfillment in Christ and in Christ alone. But it's fairly apparent that the real force of that prophecy was to be fulfilled in the birth of David's son Solomon, who would, like his father, rule on the throne of Israel. There seem to be some flickers of messianic hope in what the prophet promises there, flickers that would continue to flash through the life and leadership of Solomon. You can almost anticipate it as you read through First and Second Kings, this optimism that eventually God is going to send us the kind of king that we have long been waiting for. Solomon led the people of Israel masterfully. Even today, the borders, the boundaries of Israel have yet to be broadened as far as they were in the days of Solomon. There has never been a season of economic security and stability in the nation of Israel such as there was in the days of Solomon's leadership. Israel has never enjoyed the kind of military fortitude they enjoyed in the days of Solomon. This teeny tiny state, smaller than the state of Mississippi, was now a place to which international leaders looked to find wisdom and insight from Solomon, the great king of Israel. We tend to read our Bibles and think of Israel as this massive place. It was at the center of, of everything in terms of the geopolitical world in ancient times. But nothing could be further from the truth. It was only in the days of Solomon that Israel really found itself at the crossroads of political influence in the world. Mightiest kingdoms in the world sent their leaders to seek the wisdom and the insight of King Solomon. You can sense this growing optimism that this is the kind of king that Moses had promised, a king who had prioritized the needs of his people even over that of his own. Solomon is, after all, the one who prays the prayer of dedication over the temple of God and the glory cloud descends in great power. That optimism remains until Solomon takes 700 wives and 300 concubines. 
That can be problematic. The cycle repeats itself with the birth of every Davidic king, with the inauguration of every Davidic king, this hopeful optimism that this will be the king, and then the dashing of all of Israel's dreams as one by one by one by one, they prove themselves incapable of measuring up to the standard of God. They deviate from the will and the word of God by practice in their leadership. They fail to be the kind of king that Israel had hoped for. Across the Old Testament, there is this phenomenon known as progressive revelation, which is to say that over the course of time, God is revealing a bit more and a bit more and a bit more of what he intends to do to save a people all his own. There are, as I said, flickers of messianic hope that exist as far back as Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15. When God gives the curse to Adam and Eve in the garden at their sin, he speaks of a seed born of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, but not before the serpent would strike his heel. There are flickers of those kinds of hopes all the way back to Genesis 3. But there is the gradual, incremental evolution of understanding the more and more and more God is giving us the more and more and more we understand. Uh, this, this bombshell is dropped theologically in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah prophesies near the end of the period of the kings, near the end of that period of time in Israel's history when they had been longing for and so hopefully anticipating God sending forth the king. They were looking for a son of David who would lead them well, who would prioritize their needs over his own. Isaiah has something to say about the nature of this king that is absolutely astonishing. Isaiah refers to this virgin-born king who would come, not just as the son of David, but as the son of God. In fact, he refers to him as our prince of peace, our everlasting God, our, our everlasting father, our mighty God. He assigns that language to the son of David who would come and rule on the throne of Israel. And for the first time in biblical history, God has revealed to us a fully formed explanation of how it is he intends to redeem a people all his own. Luke is signaling us to remember these reminders from the Old Testament, noting that he will rule on the throne of his father, David. But more important than just being a son of David, as so many before him had been, this king would be the son of God. You understand that when we celebrate the Christmas season, we're not celebrating the beginning of Jesus. We're celebrating the incarnation of the only begotten Son of God. There's a line in the hymn that we sang earlier. I, I don't think everyone understands what we're singing when we sing it, and it's certainly not well understood in the culture. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Jesus is not beginning to exist when he is born of a virgin. Rather, this represents the moment in time in human history when Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, clothes himself in flesh, lays aside the glories and the splendors of heaven to make himself subject to all of the indignities of life in the here and now, life in a sin-sick world, and he does it to pursue you and me in salvation. Mary asked, and perhaps rightly so, 
how can this thing be since I've not been intimate with a man? The angel replied to her in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. There are very few opportunities across the course of the church year to talk about the doctrine of the virgin birth. So this is a great opportunity for this. And if you're going to be effective in evangelizing, if, if you're going to persist in evangelism specifically among Muslims and among those who come from a Catholic tradition background, you're going to have to reckon with the doctrine of the virgin birth in order to be effective. Looking back over the past year, probably the most encouraging, the most insightful, if I, if I were to just go back over the last year and say the, the moment in my efforts at sharing the gospel personally that stands out the most, it, it was an extended encounter with, a, with a, a Muslim talking about who Jesus is. Now, most Christians in the West just think Muslims hate Jesus, but that really could not be further from the truth. I tell the story from time to time. About 10 years ago, PBS was planning to broadcast one of these historical Jesus documentaries in which they suggested that Jesus married Mary Magdalene and bore children. It was a gross misrepresentation of historical data taken completely out of context. It was the kind of thing you find on the History Channel and in National Geographic commonly in this season of the year. That was shut down, and PBS elected not to air that documentary, not because Christians were outraged, but because Muslims were outraged that they would disgrace the prophet Jesus in such a gross historical misrepresentation. Now, in fairness, Christians don't cut people's heads off, so that's a little different dynamic. But if you're going to engage Muslims in our cultural context, you're going to have to know what to do with Jesus and how to interact at this particular level. Just weeks ago in South Asia, one of the things that we found ourselves encountering pretty consistently in engaging Muslims in gospel conversation was this idea that they, they believe, that we believe, that God the Father was intimate with the Virgin Mary, and that's how she bore forth Jesus. But that is not at all what the passage is teaching. Conceived of the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Maiden was the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's an element of mystery about this thing, right? In the same way the resurrection event itself happens in the darkness provided by a stone over the mouth of that grave, the conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit happens in the secrecy of Mary's womb. But there is something we can know about this phenomenon, about this miracle that God wrought by the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you're looking for insight as to how this develops, the Gospel of John chapter 1 provides us with perhaps more than either Luke or Matthew. The Bible says in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verses 13 and 14 of John 1 tell us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The miracle that was wrought in the womb of the Virgin Mary is that the Word became flesh. God became flesh. God clothed himself in flesh in the Virgin's womb. Just last week, a man by the name of Franco Harris died. If you're 10 years older than me, you know exactly who Franco Harris is. If you're my age, you probably heard your fathers talk about Franco Harris in a play that's known famously in the history of the National Football League as the Immaculate Reception. 
Ball bounces around. Franco Harris picks up the ball. Steelers win the ball game. That's the gist of the story. It was referred to as the Immaculate Reception, which is a play on the Catholic doctrine, the Immaculate Conception. Oddly enough, Franco Harris has probably done more in that moment and the phrase, the title that his miraculous play took to advance the Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception than anything the Catholic Church has done in the last 1,500 years. I often hear Christians make reference to that as though it's a doctrine that we believe. What you may not know is that the Immaculate Conception is not at all about the conception of Jesus. It's about the conception of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And the teaching goes that Mary was born free from original sin. She was immaculately conceived in her mother's womb, fitting her to be able to bear forth her son Jesus, free likewise from the conditions of original sin. You won't find that doctrine taught anywhere in the Bible because it is not a biblical doctrine. It is that God was pleased to work even in a sinful Mary who lived under the curse of sin, even as you and I live under the curse of sin. It has always been the mode of our God to strike straight licks with crooked sticks. Aren't you glad that God is pleased to work with sin-sick people like me and you? And we might reflect on the life of Mary as running along parallel lines with our experience. In spite of our faults, in spite of our shortcomings, God was pleased to work in her in a powerful way. It is by grace and not by works that the angel would say to Mary, Blessed are you, favored one. So conceived of the Holy Spirit in this miraculous and mysterious way, Jesus is fashioned in the womb of Mary and grows in strength and stature. Born into this world subject to all of the difficulties of, of infancy, indefensible in and of himself, he would subject himself to, to these indignities, to these difficulties. Can you imagine a king living under such circumstance? And it's precisely what Jesus was willing to undergo in order that you and I might come to faith in him. Verse 36 says, Consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who is called childless. Mary said, How can I know? And the angel speaks further, and he explains this is how this is going to work. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, in the absence of any physical intimacy with another man, Jesus will be born. But he says, here's the verifiable evidence for you. Your relative, Elizabeth, is with child. She is an old woman, and yet she is with child. That child is John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner, the trailblazer for Jesus. His birth would likewise serve as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That someone would come before Jesus, preaching, making straight his way in the wilderness. He would be the one who prepared the way for Jesus in his earthly life and ministry. This is the evidence, Mary, the angel says. Elizabeth herself is with child. And then verse 37 says, for nothing will be impossible with God. You know, I suppose there's a place, there's room that a much older woman would bear a child. You know, it could happen. Stranger things have happened. We might say it's unlikely that Sarah at 90 years old would bear a child. We might say it's improbable that Hannah, after all of these years of trying, would give birth to a child. 
Wouldn't we have to say it's impossible that Mary, who'd never been intimate with a man, could, could bring forth a child? God does the impossible here. And, and the note in verse 37 comes directly from this exchange between God and Sarah way back in the Genesis account that we looked at a few weeks ago. Nothing will be impossible with God. Mary responds at last in verse 38, I am the Lord's slave. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel left her. What results from this encounter? The miracle of Holy Spirit conception, the virgin birth, unfolds in Luke chapter 2. It's appropriate that we would read these verses together. This is that customary birth narrative, read most famously from Linus of the Charlie Brown Christmas special, right? Look at Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. The Bible says in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him snugly in cloth and laid him in a feeding trough because there was no room for them at the lodging place. This is that passage that we know famously, and the unfortunate reality is that this passage often suffers what is commonly referred to as familiarity fatigue. We lose a sense of awe and wonder at what ought to be for us incredibly astonishing as we grow more and more familiar with what God has done in human history. So I want to unpack this for just a moment. This is the moment in time in human history when God breaks in. Like you, you haven't seen anything in a major, major motion picture in your life that measures up to what we've just observed in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. God has broken into human history. The Son of God has clothed himself in flesh and come to dwell in our midst. So if, for those of you who don't know me well or, or, or don't hear me preach often, I have, a, I have a three-year-old son. Our youngest is three. In fact, he's going to be four years old next Sunday. And I just got to tell y'all, I, I am so sick of cocoa melon and blippy. I don't know what to do with myself. We're getting to that point. If you're a mom or dad here of young children, you can sympathize with my pain. The cartoons are not what they used to be, right? But we're getting to that age, for a little boy especially, where he's beginning to enjoy movies and television programs that aren't animated. His new favorite, thank God, is what he refers to as the Lion Movies, which is his way of referring to the Chronicles of Narnia. So the bedtime routine is that Dad sits with Bo for 15 to 20 minutes, and we watch bits of movies, and we'll pick them up in consecutive nights, and then mom comes in and scoops him up and takes him to bed, and we go through the whole tuck-in routine, and then he gets up and comes in, and we do it again, and we do it again, and we do it again. You catch the gist. We're watching the other night, and we'd been watching for a couple of nights the, the first episode of the Chronicles of Narnia, that, that first Chronicles of Narnia movie that you're likely familiar with, and we're following along with these two boys, and they're two sisters and their 
journey to find Aslan who will deliver them from their plight, who will be king over Narnia and will defeat the White Witch. Now, the movie does a really good job of this building anticipation. There's talk about Aslan. There are flickers of Aslan in the film. But it's not until this one moment that he's really revealed to the people. They go out to the stone table where Aslan has his army gathered. And as they approach, it's the first time in the film when the setting is springtime, when there's greenery, when there's life, when there's vegetation. It has been winter until that time, but with the coming of Aslan means the coming of spring. So they approach, walking in the midst of Aslan's army, and the boys and girls arrive there before his tent. And I'm holding Bo. He's sitting beside me, and he's getting close to that place where I'm able to get Brandy to come put him into bed. And all at once, Aslan walks from inside his tent and reveals himself to those two boys and two girls for the first time. And if you could have seen the astonishment on that little boy's face when he saw this great cat with that great mane walk out of that tent. It's precisely the kind of response the Bible intends to create in us as we expect and we expect and we expect and we hope and we hope and we hope and all at once Aslan walks forth from the tent. All at once, Jesus clothes himself in flesh. All at once, Jesus breaks into human history. It had been 2,000 years since God made his promise to Abram. It had been 1,000 years since God made his promise to David. It had been 500 years since God spoke a prophetic word to the people of Israel. It had been nine months since Gabriel spoke to the Virgin Mary. All at once, Jesus breaks in. This is an amazing thing. That God would clothe himself in flesh and dwell in our midst. And he does it to redeem us from our sin. I confessed last night, if you were here, that I bear the name Grinch at my house. They're just things about holidays that sort of grind on me, right? I love Jesus, I love the birth of Jesus, but I hate that there are all these things that attach themselves like parasites to the holiday and insulate us against the ability to really rejoice in what God has done. I've been in ministry now for nearly 20 years. Now I have yet to see, and there there are things that we don't see, I don't know the mind of God or how he's at work and those to whom he gives me the privilege of, of preaching, but I have yet to observe with my eye anyway any long-lasting, powerful move of God's Holy Spirit during the Christmas or the Easter season. And I'm convinced it's in large part because Satan has done such a remarkable job at blinding our eyes and deafening our ears and hardening our hearts and the materialism of the season and all of the little parasitic trappings that attach themselves to this time of the year, preventing us from being able to be struck with awe at the reality of what God has done in clothing himself with flesh in dying in our place as our substitute on the cross and being raised in victory from the dead. 
And I'm disheartened and frustrated at the reality that during these Christian holiday seasons, there are untold thousands of people who file their way into churches just like ours, who sit under the preaching of the gospel without eyes to see or ears to hear or hearts to discern the truth of the message. So what I want to ask you this morning is not if you celebrate Christmas, not if you celebrate Easter, not if you believe in the Christmas story or believe in the Christmas message. Even the demons believe and they tremble. All of America is celebrating Christmas for heaven's sake. Don't fool yourself into believing that all of America is bound for heaven. Most of the people that you know will die and go to hell. I say that on the authority of Jesus' word. Broad is the way that leads to death, and there are many who go thereby. Narrow is the gate that leads to life, and there are few who find it. I'm not asking if you celebrate or believe in Christmas or if you celebrate or believe in Easter. Everybody does. I'm asking you this morning, are you born again? Born that man no more may die. He was born that we might know the second birth. Jesus would say to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Has there been a moment in time in your life when you believe the story of Christmas, when you believe the message of Easter with such depth that it made its way into the marrow of your bones, into the dark and deep sin-struck crevices of your heart when you were forever changed by the power of the gospel? Has there been a moment in time in your life when you believed with such fervency that it produced repentance in your life, when you gladly exchanged the passing pleasures of this life to know Christ in his fullness? Are you born again? This is what God has done in human history. People just like you and me broken in. He's fulfilled his promise. In Jesus, the last chapter of God's plan for our salvation was written. The invitation of that book, the invitation of that message is that you and I would believe on Christ and repent of our sins, know him in salvation. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the chance to spend these moments together. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to discern the truth of the gospel. God, no amount of persuasion, no amount of preaching, no amount of exhortation can do in a man's heart what only you can. So I ask, God, that you would touch and turn the hearts of men and women and boys and girls you would make the dead to live and the blind to see, the deaf to hear. That you would soften, squeeze the hardest of hearts. God, it, it would be a delight. You'd be pleased to grant the great gift of salvation this morning as we celebrate the gift of your son. We pray that you would work in just that way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.